The headlines tonight. The mouse that roared as Douglas Engelbart unveils hypertext and Windows 1.0. Yankee Patriots kick redcoats out of Virginia. And Operation Compass turns in the desert war. Plus coming up, Margaret Thatcher to be reborn as a canary. Those are the headlines. We report, you gargle bleach. Uju's Bang, injecting truth into the fatigue of ignorance. 1968. 1968, a year when computers were as big as a Tesco's and twice as unreliable. American boffin Douglas Doug Engelbart, frustrated with the traditional punch card system, strapped a hunk of cheese to a small dog, and hey presto, the computer mouse was born. He unveiled his creation in The Mother of All Demos, a live demonstration that left geeks in an uncomfortable state of arousal. Engelbart's groundbreaking work saw the first use of hypertext, a system of linking words to other words, much like a teenager's excuse for not doing homework. One bystander, 10-year-old Timmy Johnson, marvelled, Gosh, Dad, it's like he's controlling the screen with a magic cheese cutter. The event marked a turning point in human-computer interaction, paving the way for future generations to while away hours on Facebook and Reddit. The computer mouse, then made of actual cheese, would later evolve into the plastic device we know today. 1775. Uh. In 1775, it was all-out war across the pond. The Americans, fed up with British rule, had had enough of being told when to drink tea and how to spell it. Led by George Washington, a man so patriotic, he refused to wear anything but stars and stripes. The rebels fought back, and, by Jove, did they give the Brits a hiding. The Battle of Great Bridge was the clincher. The Redcoats, led by general useless tactics, were soundly thrashed by the plucky Yanks. The conflict spilled over into the Caribbean, where even the rum-soaked natives turned on them and the Atlantic Ocean, where the British Navy was sunk by a flotilla of irate cod. The British were booted out of Virginia, leaving behind a trail of Union Jacks and unopened crates of Marmite. The upstart colonies, now known as the United States, rejoiced. The end of an era, and the start of a new one, where men could be free, so long as they were white, landowning, and not too fond of a good old cuppa. A 1940. 1940, and its curtains for the Italians as the British stage Operation Compass, a raid so successful it makes the great train robbery look like a kid stealing sweets. The Allies, including the UK, US, USSR and China, have formed a motley crew to take on the Axis powers in the North African campaign. The action's hotter than a camel's backside in the Western Desert, where the Italian 10th Army is about to get schooled. Enter the Africa Corps, sent by Adolf Hitler to prop up Benito Mussolini's North African ambitions. But this time, Fascism bites the sand as the Allies push the Italians back to the point of no return. News bang. Firing the facts like bullets in a battle against ignorance. Now it's time to look at the festive weather conditions and where the snow has fallen. Shakanaka Giles is here with the weather on this magical winter time. Over in Festive Town, it's the most wonderful time of the year. The snow has arrived, so gather your loved ones and build snowmen with arms as long as your granny's nose. The weather is as picturesque as a winter postcard. On to Frosty Knightsville, 
where a chilly breeze will accompany you all day, perfect for those who've been naughty and need a quick slap of frost. And in Holly Grotto, the Christmas spirit is alive and well. There'll be a gentle dusting of snow, ideal for a cosy day indoors. Why not light a fire and sing carols while the snowflakes fall outside? In conclusion, frosty snowmen, nippy breezes and cosy Christmas cheer. Merry Christmas and that's all the weather. Nineteen sixty nine. The year nineteen sixty nine marked a series of significant global events, including the contentious Rogers plan for a ceasefire in the ongoing Arab Israeli conflict. Prime Minister William P. Rogers' proposed peace initiative received acceptance from both Egypt and Jordan, but caused contention within the Palestine Liberation Organization. In response to this dispute, a new chapter in the region's complex story began with the outbreak of conflict known as Black September, or the Jordanian Civil War. Brian Bastable reports now. Ladies and gentlemen, there was an assassination attempt. I'm in the middle of a war zone with explosions going off everywhere. I don't know who's after who, but one thing is for certain, this is the middle of a war zone. As I speak to you, the camera crew and I are pinned down behind a wall. We have the wind knocked out of us and shrapnel in our underwear. All around me, explosions. As we drove through the war-torn streets, we saw bodies everywhere. But the people here were defiant, their hearts filled with determination, yet shot to ribbons by senseless violence. I have to shout now because even the birds have left, even the mosquitoes have left. There's nothing here to remind you that life once existed. This is the war zone, ladies and gentlemen, the zone of war. As my friends and I scream for our lives, I have to ask, what is the point of all this madness, this madness of war? What is the point of killing and being killed, of blowing things up and setting them on fire? I spoke to a young girl who had lost her family in the fighting. She looked at me with sadness in her eyes, but said that she wouldn't leave her country because it was her home. As I stood there watching the night fall, I realized that this war was not just about politics or power. It was about the people who were caught in the middle. They were the ones who were paying the highest price. As we try to protect ourselves, as we try to make sense of the senseless, we know that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. We're part of this war machine that never stops. There's no other way to live, ladies and gentlemen. This is the only way. This is the world we live in. And as the fighting rages forever on, the soldiers here are doing their best. That's what war is all about. It's about the brave men who know no fear. No matter how many people they kill, they'll always be able to sleep at night. Because they know they did their duty. This is Brian Bastable on the front lines for Newsbang. In the year 2008, political scandal rocked the United States as Governor Rod Blagojevich of Illinois was arrested for corruption. The most shocking act playing out in the public eye was his alleged attempt to auction off Barack Obama's vacant Senate seat. Impeachment and conviction followed with Blagojevich ultimately imprisoned for 14 years. 
This significant event in American history unfolded during a pivotal moment, Obama's journey to the presidency. Joining me now is our reporter, Ken Shit. Greetings, degenerates. As we delve into the murky depths of 2008, let's relish the memory of a time when corruption reigned supreme and governors were as crooked as a dog's hind leg. That's right, folks. Rod fucking Blagojevich, the 40th governor of Illinois and all-around sleazeball, got caught red-handed trying to sell Barack the Hope and Change guy, Obama's vacant Senate seat. Talk about balls of steel. This guy had more nerve than a pack of wolves in sheep's clothing. Blagojevich was like a fox in a henhouse. He devoured everything in sight. He served as both a state and US representative before becoming governor, where he really let his hair down, or should I say fur down, and showed us what real corruption looks like. But alas, the jig was up for this corrupt politician who thought he could play God with Obama's Senate seat. He was arrested for corruption and impeached so fast that his head spun around like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. Blagojevich was removed from office in disgrace and later convicted on federal charges. Talk about a fall from grace. He served 14 years in prison for his crimes, just desserts for this power-hungry bastard. Meanwhile, Barack Obama went on to become the 44th president of the United States and try to clean up the mess left behind by guys like Blagojevich. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that no matter how high you climb, corruption will bring you crashing down. And it's a lesson that everyone in politics should take to heart. Let's hope that in 2023, we can look back on this era and say that we've finally cleaned up our act. 2017. In 2017, Australia marked a significant milestone as same-sex marriage was legalised. The Marriage Amendment Act of 2017 was passed and it came into effect on December 9th. This followed a voluntary postal survey that saw 61.6% support for the cause. The new law grants the right to marry for any couple aged 18 or over, regardless of their gender identities. Joining me now is Hardeman Pesto, who's been keeping a close watch on how Australians are embracing this social revolution. Good evening, Martin. Today we're speaking to a couple that had just gotten married. Jack and Alex got married on December 9, 2017. Congratulations. It's a bit late now, Pesto. No, no, not at all. The point is that they were able to celebrate their love in front of their friends and family. And you're sure that's what they want? Absolutely. So, Jack, Alex, how does it feel to be officially married? And it feels like a weight off our shoulders. We've been together for over 10 years and finally we can officially be recognised as a couple. Yeah, it's just a big relief. We never wanted to get married before, but this was a huge milestone for us. How does it feel, Pesto? It's a joyous occasion. I mean, we all know that marriage is a personal choice, and it's great to see the government finally recognising that. But it's not just a personal choice, Pesto. It's also a political one, isn't it? Well, yes, but this is a happy day. Let's not cloud it with politics, Martin. I think we can do both. Jack, do you think same-sex marriage was a political issue? Definitely. For us, it was about equal rights. We wanted to be treated the same as any other couple. It was a long fight, but it was worth it. It's great to see that love has won, isn't it, Martin? Love won, Pesto. Yeah, love won. What about equality? Well, love and equality go hand in hand, Martin. And what about the postal survey? What about it? Didn't that divide the nation and cause a lot of pain and suffering? I don't think it's productive to dwell on the past, Martin. 
Today is a day to celebrate love. But what about the future, Pesto? What about it, Martin? Won't there still be people who feel left out? Well, the government is working on that. They're looking into ways to make sure everyone feels included. And what about the churches that don't want to marry same-sex couples? That's a separate issue, Martin. Today is about celebrating love, not about politics. I see. All right, well, congratulations again, Jack and Alex. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, we're out of time, Martin. Let's wrap up. That's it for tonight. Thank you, Hardem and Pesto. Good night. News Bang. Reality repackaged and presented by a robot. Now, welcome Ryder Boff, who is here to share a fascinating story about the rise of Newcastle United, the football club born from the union of two rival teams in the 1800s, eventually culminating into the present-day team that has immensely evolved over time. It's not easy being a football fanatic in the 1800s. They didn't have smartphones and their only means of communication was via pigeon carrier. But today, my pigeon pal brought me some good news. Newcastle United, the club for the working man and boy, was formed through the glorious merger of Newcastle East End and West End. Now, most folks in town called it the Riverside Derby, since the stadium was located right next to the River Tyne. And what a sight it was on Derby days as two separate lines of fans divided by only a moat-like waterway stretched out. The mood was always electric, with boys swinging the colours of their clubs from straws. I recall one time I was young and impressionable, standing there in my black and white stripes, feeling more alive than a fish in a barrel. But let's get down to business. This club is known for being one of the two teams in Newcastle until the collapse of Newcastle West End. Now don't go thinking this is some tragic tale of despair, for it is, in fact, the origin story of our very own Newcastle United. We've come a long way since those days, partner. No longer do we have to concern ourselves with unstable grounds and slippery pitches. We've gone and built ourselves a fancy, shiny new stadium called St. James's Park, where we now comfortably host our rivals from down south. The magpies have flown the coop and risen from the ashes like a phoenix, spreading their wings to soar to even greater heights. That's not bad for a team that started off playing only for the love of the game, haven't you heard? We're Newcastle's pride and joy, the Toon Army, united like no other. Mm. 1968. Calamity Prenderville now brings us the story of a pivotal moment in tech history when one man's vision led to some incredible advancements. <laughs> Time to rewind the clocks, folks. It's 1968, and in a room filled with tech heads and bespectacled boffins, one man is about to change the game. Douglas Engelbart, an American chap with more vision than a clouder of cats sporting bifocals, gives the mother of all demos. And oh, my silicon chips, what a spectacle! Engelbart whips out what looks like a wooden doorstop attached to a cord and declares, It's a computer mouse. The audience gasps as he points and clicks his way into history. This nifty gizmo lets you navigate a computer screen as if by magic. No more typing commands like a secretary on overtime. But wait, there's more. He unveils something called hypertext. Imagine you're reading about tea cosies in your encyclopedia, and with just a click, you can leapfrog to an article on how to brew the perfect cuppa. Astonishing. And for the piece de resistance... Engelbart showcases the bit-mapped graphical user interface, 
It sounds like the sort of thing you'd expect from British telly's test card, but it's actually the granddaddy of all those icons and windows cluttering up your computer screen today. Now let's not forget the NLS system. That stands for online system, not no lumpy soup, as one might hope. The first ever system to use Engelbart's wild innovations. Rumour has it that the Queen herself fancied such a setup for planning garden parties at Buckingham Palace. It was a demo so monumental that even Britannia's cutting-edge tech wizards had to tip their hats, or rather their Union Jack beanies, to Mr Engelbart's American ingenuity. So there we have it, a tale of technology that thrust us into an era where chasing an electronic arrow across the screen would become a national pastime. Douglas Engelbart, we salute you with our mice firmly in hand. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, clicking off. Newsbang, a fearless dive into the deep end of fact. Adit, 1897. With Christmas fast approaching for many, a new single is making a bid to the UK's Christmas number one. The release from acoustic spunk chord duo Charm Offensive features none other than Newsbang's very own Brian Bastable and Smithsonian Moss. It's called Rap Battle Battle Rap and it'll be in the shops this Friday. Here's a sneak preview. My war, this is my war. A war of peace. A war for freedom. A war for death. This is the battle that will not die. The battle that will not be forgotten. The battle that will go down in history. As the battle of the century. As the battle of the ages. As the battle of the brave. As the battle of the damned. My war, this is my war. That will not die. The battle that will make you the want to live forever. The battle that will make you want to die. This is the battle that will bring the you rest. The battle that will set your heart racing. The battle that will raise your temperature. The battle that will make you fall to your knees. As the battle of the ages and the battle of the brave. This is the battle that will be remembered for all time. This is the battle that will make you want to live forever. News bang, exposing the emperors of lies. And so we reach the end of another news bang, but just time for tomorrow's headlines. The Times. Navy ships sunk by Japanese, millions dead. The Telegraph. World War II claims more royalty, this time at sea. The Guardian. Repulse and Prince drowned in South China Sea Battle. Daily Mail. Japs sink two of our finest, tally-ho. The Sun. Kim Jong-un's granddad sinks British ships, Stalin laughs. And finally, the Beano. Sinking feeling for HMS Repulse as Japan breaks up 0074X. That's it from us. Join us tomorrow when we'll be looking at why cows don't rule the waves and how one man single-handedly lost the Falklands War with a sneeze.
Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.